If you have your Bible, please open again to Isaiah chapter 9 as we'll look at two passages today as we begin this Advent season. It was just two days ago, Thanksgiving, and here we are starting Christmas already. It's that time of year, but uh, we want to align ourselves with um, the anticipation of Christmas, and this year we've chosen a theme that goes right along with the Advent booklet. So all the passages that are in this weekly study are the same passages that you'll hear expounded uh, in the weeks to come here on the, in, in church. Um, the human condition is a fallen, broken situation that can make us all lose hope. No matter how long we live, no matter what experiences we go through, um, we are always going to have tensions and challenges, wars and rumors of wars, terrorism. In the 30 years that I've been paying a little bit of attention to our political landscape, I've never seen it as politically divided, as vitriolic, um, uh, all the stuff going on. You turn the news on, it's completely depressing every single day, whether it's a single act of a, a person who's mentally unstable or it's alleged terrorism or whatever the case may be. And beyond these large and ominous forces that we are now becoming, it's becoming commonplace to live with this, uh, beyond those forces are just the, just the stuff of life, of marriage and family and health. And raising kids, raising teens, raising your grandchildren. Your grandchildren, by the way. Not your son and daughter's child, but your grandchild. Uh, taking care of business. Finishing your college, finishing your degrees, going back to school. How we get along in marriage and family. Going through divorce, going through single parenting. Now, the stuff of life is just ever-present. Not bad enough that we have these ominous big threats that are terrifying and can cause us to be insecure and worry, add money and debt and all kinds of challenges. and just makes for a joyful life, doesn't it? So much fun to wake up and challenge the day. A fixation on these can paralyze us. Uh, Over-concern about any of these things can make us people that chew our mental fingernails and worry about everything and lose sleep and watch too much news and read too much press. Or if we become apathetic, we're off guard and unaware. You know, the ancients were not that different than you and me. Uh, sure, they didn't have technology. They didn't have devices that could pull up things instantaneously. They didn't have Twitter accounts and real-time hashtags. But the ancients were no different. They were not stupid people. They were intelligent just like you and me. They had a brain. They had skills. They had crafts. They knew how to raise their family. They knew how to make a marriage work. They knew how to sin. They were not that different. While technology and convenience have helped us, it hasn't made the human condition any different. One could argue it's made it worse. They feared war. They feared disease. They feared their children's livelihoods. They feared for their own health. They wanted love. They wanted happiness. They wanted the crops to prosper. They wanted their business to succeed. They wanted to employ people. They wanted to do the right thing the right way. They wanted justice. They wanted a king to rule well. They thought things should work. They loved God. And many of the ancient Jews were pious believers. Men and women for thousands of years have found and lost hope. And part of the challenge of understanding hope is we're not hoping in hope. That's no different than the little engine that could. 
I think I can, I think I can, I think I can theology is a false system. We're not hoping in hope. That's a, a circular argument that goes nowhere. So in what do we hope? How many of you had to read The Count of Monte Cristo in high school or college? How many of you cheated and saw the film like me? <laughs> or films, the m many iterations of the film. Andre Dumas has a character uh, in the film, in uh, the storyline, Morel, he speaks to, that is sort of the one bright hope of the whole storyline. There is neither happiness nor misery in the world. There is only comparison from one state to another, nothing more. He who has felt the deepest grief is able to experience supreme happiness. He who has experienced the deepest grief is able to experience supreme happiness. We must have felt what it is to die, Morel, that we may appreciate the enjoyments of life. Live then and be happy, beloved children of my heart, and never forget that the day God will deign to reveal to us the future of man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. Now, that may not stir you like it stirs me, but it still falls. Am I just hoping in hope? Many of us in the room would say Shawshank Redemption is one of your favorite films. If you ever want to entertain yourself, read the novella by Stephen King, a very short story called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, on which King's work was taken and produced into the film. But we may remember the classic line, remember hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. And we love that line. But it's still hope in hope. It's kind of flat if you follow it through. It's not just positive mental attitude or think nice thoughts or think hopeful, cheery, positive outcomes because... The human condition is what it is, and we live in that situation. Well, let's look at what the Scripture teaches us about hope in a, little, a short part today at least. Let me ask you to stand for just a moment. Let's read Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7 one more time. From the screen, read in unison. It is the Word of God. Let's read it well. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Thanks. You can be seated. Approximately 740 years before Christ is born, Isaiah begins this work. It will take him approximately 40 years to complete the record of Isaiah. We call it a major prophet, not because he's more important, but because it's more, more material. A minor prophet is just someone with a shorter account. Isaiah spreads four different kings. The last king he will write under is Hezekiah. The nation is divided. Israel is in the north. Judah is in the south. For you history buffs, I remember that I comes before J in the alphabet. I in the north, J in the south. Israel and Judah have been divided. The divided kingdom is not a good thing. 
It was to be a unified kingdom. It was to be one kingdom, a theocracy under Yahweh Elohim as their king, as their God. And yet they have infighting and civil war and a list of kings who do evil in the sight of the Lord. We don't know a tremendous amount about Isaiah. We piece together a few things from Scripture. Uh, Hebrew tradition believes that he is the prophet referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 37, about the one who's sawn in two. And many believe that uh, references Isaiah, but we don't have anything in the text that tells us that. Uh, what is happening in chapter 9, and we talk about prophetic literature, uh, sometimes you hear the phrase, now but not yet. That's not a bad phrase, but it creates some questions that are not unnecessary to me. I think of layers rather than now and not yet. Now and not yet is fine. If you like that phrase, you're okay. But I like to think of layers. When this text was penned, it meant something in that time frame to those hearers. As we go through time and we understand more and more of God's plan, more and more of God's work in the New Testament unfolds it, then we see new layers of meaning and how it applies. There's one interpretation of the text written in an historical context, but it has new emphasis, new applications, new understanding as time goes on. And we're going to see where Paul will appeal to some of these verses, as will other New Testament authors appeal to the Old Testament. So briefly then we look at a passage that had a context, but we're talking about what it means from a larger perspective as we look back from the New Testament. And the passage we just read, of course, is about the birth of Messiah. In the time it was written, these terms would be messianic. They would be the word deliverer or savior and king. So the language we've just read is looking toward, toward a time when a deliverer, a sovereign king will come and make things right. And that's, of course, what the ancients wanted and what we want as well. These promises connect back to Abraham. When we went through Genesis, we said again and again and again, Genesis chapter 12 is a key chapter for you to know about. Because he promised Abraham he would be a blessing to the world. That through him the world will be blessed. We'll briefly touch on Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 about the Davidic kingdom. Because from the Abrahamic promise, that unilateral, unconditional promise, will come the Davidic line. And the Davidic line will be the kingdom that God says, I will establish it forever. There will be a king who will reign in the Davidic lineage forever. And so these promises aren't just kind of nice Bible stories. This is the word of God saying, I'm going to do a thing and nothing can stop it. And therein where the believer finds hope, not merely hope in hope. Well, there's five descriptions of this Savior King, this Deliverer King given in Isaiah. The first one is in verse 6, a child is born, a son will be given. Now this is a parallelism. If you study the Psalms, you should learn to pick, pick up on these. This is really easy to see. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. A child, a son will be born, will be given. It's a repetition. It's very easy to see. But much more than that repetition is going on. To be a child is to be human. To be born of man is to be a human individual. A child will be born, a son will be given to us. The child has to be male because the royal lineage, sorry women, in antiquity only a king, only men could be king. And you had to be of the lineage of the king in order to be acknowledged a king. You couldn't just make yourself a king. We see that braid down later in Israel's history. By the time of Judges, of course, it's a disaster. 
Notice that he comes to us. A child will be born to us, a son will be given. This is where God as the agent is moving in men's lives. He's going to bring a child, a son of man who's going to come, and he's going to be born at a time to be that deliverer king. Secondly, he will rule. The government will rest on his shoulders. <clears throat> when you see sometimes, if, if you saw when Prince Charles, if you remember the footage of that was, was established as prince, or in more, in more of an immediate context, if you've ever been to an inauguration of a college president, he or she, they typically make a custom doctoral robe or a color hood for that individual, and often a medallion accompanies that uh, appointment to be a president of a college university. And what they're doing is they're putting the weight of the governing of that school, or for a king, the weight of that kingdom is robed on his shoulders. That's what the metaphor means. The government will rest on his shoulders. So this regal robe in the royal line is going to be put on this boy king, this soon coming king, and he is the one who will wear the weight of the authority granted to him. Thirdly, his name will be called. Literally, the phrase is, one will call his name. Now, I don't like to burrow down too far in the language, but sometimes it's important for us to hear it differently. It's not like someone's going to name him. The text is precise, one will call his name. And why that is important, in the Old Testament, when the Hebrews named their children, it wasn't just a name they liked. Sure, sometimes it was a family name, but you were both observing and ascribing character to a child. And some of the names are quite comical as we study Old Testament history, and some are quite significant. So when you named a child, it, uh, contemplation, when it, it wasn't just, let me, I like, it's a cool sounding name, like we, I like the name so and so, let's name that. You know, Cindy and I argued about our children's names, you know. I like this, I like that. No, I always think of that person in high school if you name our child that child. So we argued about names, and you pick a name, right? That's how we do it as Americans. That sounds good. Um, not how the Hebrew did it. When you named a child Asher, that child brought joy. Or that baby was a joyful baby when they were an infant. And you said, let's, let's name him Joy. So there was thought behind the name. So what the Hebrew is saying, one will call his name. And now we're going to have four descriptors of that name. So we take a little excursus into this name. Four words, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Some of your older Bibles use wonderful and counselor as two different names, coming up with five names. More recent translations opt for four. It doesn't make that big of a difference. Wonderful is one of those English words that means everything, therefore it means nothing. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope you have a wonderful Christmas. What does that mean? Whatever you want it to mean. The word in Hebrew, 80% of the time, means supernatural. Otherworldly. This counselor is supernatural. He, think of signs and wonders. You've heard that expression, signs and wonders in Old and New Testament. They're things that are supernatural. They're above nature. We can't explain them away by observation of nature. When Christ turns water to wine, that's supernatural, above nature. When he walks on water, that's above nature. That's a wonder. And so the word 80% of the time has to do with God doing something that is supernatural. Wonderful counselor. The idea combined with this counselor is that he is a sovereign king. He is a wonderful, brilliant leader 
not just a smart human being, not just the head of his pack, not just politically shrewd, not just going to make Israel great again. Uh, He is a supernatural counselor. Secondly, he's mighty God. The text is a head-scratcher for the Jew. How can a human king be a mighty God? And we're introduced to the doctrine of the Trinity in many ways in the Old Testament. He's no mere human hero. He's not a God hero. He's the mighty God. Now some of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis, what they, he calls the, the trimillennium. The idea is a dilemma, trimillennium. The idea is that there's liar, lunatic, or lord. Now, Lewis popularized it. It was actually a part of rhetoric much before Lewis, but he made it common. And he writes in part in his book, Mere Christianity, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying that really foolish thing that people say about him, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he was a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or... You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have accepted the view that he was and is God. So the trilemma was liar, lunatic, Lord. The text is saying he's mighty God. He's going to be born. He's a son of. He's a royal lineage. But he's fully God. And we've said many times he must be fully human in order to die. Must be fully God in order to live again and to grant resurrection power to those who follow in him. Thirdly, he's the eternal father. And this again continues the conundrum for the ancient for the Jew, for the pious believer, there were many scholars who couldn't understand how could he be a child born royally and be the eternal God. The second person of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, we malign the Holy Spirit, we forget about him, but the Son is fully God. He's not a little chip off the old God. He's not a human chip off the big block of God. He is fully God. And the relationship that that exists between the Father, Son, and Spirit will be forever examined by human brains. We won't comprehend it all, but it is clearly taught in Scripture. Fourthly, he's the Prince of Peace. Shar Shalom. Again, we need some help here. Shar is the word commander or captain. Again, we think of the word prince as more of a sort of a, an emblem, a relic. I mean, you think of Prince Charles, um, nothing disparaging against him or his sons, but it's a, it's a status it's a country that has this strange relationship toward this nobility that really has very little power other than you know, what they do behind the scenes. A true pen- prince was a commander. An ancient prince was a leader, often a captain of a guard, a ruler, a master. 
So the phrase is the commander, the master of peace, shalom. And shalom is again another word that means nothing to us. Peace be with you. What does that mean? Uh, It's not just the absence of war. For a king to bring peace meant that he was whole or complete as a leader. He brought what everybody wanted. He brought safety. He brought prosperity to the land. He executed justice and mercy properly. We all want a leader who will do those kinds of things. We want a leader who is a captain, a commander, a strong person who understands how to protect his people from real enemies at the same time making the environment prosperous for the people that live under his reign. The Prince of Peace is the one who administers a relationship with the people whom he loves. Well, those are the names. We go back to the text. Further about this deliverer, savior, king, there's no end to the increase on the throne of David. Second Samuel chapter 7, we won't turn there, is the, is the discussion related where David wanted to build God a palace, a, 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 a home. And God says, no, you're a, you're, your hands are marked with blood. You can build yourself a palace, but your son will build me a temple complex, not you. And so David, being a very powerful, wealthy king, amasses building supplies that will outlast him so that his son Solomon can build this fabulous, one-of-a-kind construct we know as the temple complex. But God lets him build his own house. God tells David that there will be a king on the throne of David forever and ever and ever. And again, rabbinic scratched their head. Well, wait a minute, the kingdoms have dissolved and fallen in disaster The the divided kingdom destroyed the unified kingdom. The period of the judges was disastrous. I mean, the the Jew was at its lowest, darkest time politically and theologically. And people did what was right in their own eyes. No, there's going to be a ruler king who will reign forever. That's why the promises of Scripture are, the cadence of Scripture cannot be broken. From the time of Abraham, I'm making a promise. I'm going to bless the world through you, Abraham. There's one going to come from you. And we, we get recast in 2 Samuel 7. There'll be a king forever on that throne. And he'll be born. And he'll die. And he'll come again and reign for all eternity. Just because he's absent on the throne right now does not mean he's not present. Just because he's not literally on earth in a fancy building does not mean he's not active as the king of the universe. The cadence of Scripture is hard to meet. Now, pragmatically, even the best kings go bad. We have a handful of kings that ended well, but we have a long list of those who did evil in the sight of the Lord. We have a long list of politicians who start out well and don't end so well. Power is a hard thing to manage for a human being. It says there's no end to the increase of his government. And this is a little bit humorous because every king always wants more land and more power. No king is ever satisfied. The economy is big enough. Our land is big enough. Uh, the number of people is enough. And so we're just going to maintain what we have. It's the nature of a king to increase. It's the nature of a king to reign and to rule and to expand his kingdom. And that's why we have constant wars and we always will on until Christ returns. He is to uphold it with justice and righteousness. Justice is the ability to serve the, uh, the one who's been injured and to vindicate, uh, to deal with, to punish the one who's committed a crime. We're to vindicate the widow and the orphan. The widow and the orphan is not 
always literal. It's an A to Z formula. Those who are the most vulnerable are little orphans and old widows. A to Z. You take care of anyone whom injustice can hurt. That's what a judge does. He justifies the, the, the punishment to the wicked. They're going to vindicate the innocent. So this king is to execute justice and righteousness. So justice is to execute what the punishment fits the crime. Righteousness is doing the right thing in the right way all the time. Now, dream for just a moment. If every elected and appointed official in our country executed justice properly and did the right thing in the right way every time, oh, what a wonderful world it would be. No soft money, no PACs, no corruption, no behind the doors, no lobbying, no, no audience with the king. No. If that person is guilty of a crime, the punishment fits the crime, and you vindicate the individual who is hurt or injured or taken advantage of. You protect the widow and orphan, those most vulnerable in that category. And if it's the right thing, you do the right thing in the right way. That's what a king, a leader, a politician, an elected or an appointed official ought to do. Now that's a, that's a fantasy. But it's a reality with this king. Think of how many things would be different in our country if everyone from the law enforcement to the bench to the elected official executed justice properly and did the right thing in the right way. We wouldn't be arguing about the wrong things. We'd live in a land that'd be completely different. And no, it's not found in Belize. Fifth, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Zeal is a strong emotional word. The closest we have in our language is jealousy. Um, If some guy is making moves on Cindy, I am jealous for my marriage. If some woman is making moves on me, Cindy has talons that come out of her hands, and she is jealous for me and our marriage. That's the closest word we have to understand what zeal means in the Old Testament. God is zealously, jealously, ardently loving And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It's a two-edged sword. You must cut to administer justice two ways. You must vindicate and you must execute the punishment that fits the crime. The Savior King that Isaiah is talking about, the deliverer is the one who will come who will do this. Alec Motier said it very succinctly. It is the Lord who plans the future, shatters the foe, and keeps his promises. It is the Lord who plans the future, shatters the foe, and keeps his promises. Well, let's turn over to uh, Romans chapter 15 for just a couple of moments. And this is the verse that covers this, the, the whole outline of the Advent uh, devotional booklet that our team has put together for you. Romans 15, verses 12 and 13. And again, if you just read from the screen, you can remain seated. Romans 15 verses 12 and 13. Read with me. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, this section of Romans takes a little bit of development, but let me just say it very succinctly. Paul is talking about the alignment of the Jew to the patriarchs, the Jews, and how the Gentiles fit in the program. 
Paul likes the phrase one another a lot, and it's mentioned in here. And he's saying you need to treat one another like Jesus did when he came as a servant. And that's how we get along in the family of Jew and Gentile. A little history on Jew and Gentile to, to remind us and re- focus us on the passage. Um, when we go back to Abraham's covenant, covenant promise, God told Abraham he'd be a blessing to the world. But the Jew was also a covenant people to be separate from the world. And so there was a tension there how you dealt with those outside, well, let's just call it the tribes. You weren't to intermarry, you weren't to take their children, but those things happened. So the tension was, how are they to be a blessing to the world on the one hand, but on the other hand, they're not to be involved with it? It's a legitimate question the rabbis and pious Jews would have. When Jesus comes, he tears the curtain from top to bottom. And Paul writes it in this way, there's neither male nor female, neither slave nor free, neither Jew nor Greek, all are one in Christ. So gender's not the issue, racial tensions, nationalities aren't the issue, neither male nor female, Jew, Gentile Jew, slave or free, doesn't matter your station in life, we're one in Christ. Now you have to see a little bit of God's sense of humor. You take a rabbi's rabbi, a Jew's Jew named Paul, an Ivy Leaguer who's trained in the way of Judaism all the way down the line. His pedigree is unimpeachable as a Jew's Jew. He comes to Christ, and his job is to take that message to the Gentile. The Jew referred in the Old Testament to the Gentile as the goyim, the people that were not part of Judaism, not part of Israel. Goy is not always, but sometimes it's a derogative term. They're goy. Uh, think of uh, uh, films, or maybe if you've been to Lancaster Counting, you've been around Amish, whatnot. There's the English, and then there's the community. And you don't relate to English, you stay away from them. And that's not unlike the Jew. And the problem is today, when you go to Israel, because it is God's will, you will go to the Wailing Wall, and you will stand there, and you will ask me or someone, Michael, why are there so many different Jews? And I will say, you're beginning to learn. It'd be like saying, explain to me American Christianity. Let's write a big book to explain it, right? We can't explain. I mean, there are so many iterations of what people call Christian, right? From all sorts of denominational lines that have nothing to do with each other. That's Judaism. Judaism has so many different sects and segments and groups, so it's really hard to get your head around what's Judaism today. They don't agree among themselves, obviously. So when the gospel comes, Jesus came to his own, and his own knew him not. And so the gospel goes to the Gentile. The Gentile embraces it in mass. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the remotest part of the earth. Your Bible is a chronology of Acts 1-8 of Paul becoming this Jewish missionary to the Gentiles and blowing up the world. And all these letters you read are Paul going further and further from the center of Judaism to take Christianity around the globe. That's why we call our missions global, because that was the objective. Take it to the remotest part of the world. And each of these letters is written in a context. Paul's writing the Roman believers, and he's saying, look, you have to get along as Jew and Gentile, and the way you do it is to look at how Christ treated one another. That's the short summary Let's acknowledge the patriarchs because through the patriarchs came Jesus and we have a proper respect of the patriarchs because they were God-fearing, pious, we call them believers, Jewish believers, but the message went to the Gentile. And far more Gentiles embraced it in the first century than Jews. 
Well, Paul uses four Old Testament passages in the sections of Romans. We're just going to look at uh, two verses in verses 12 and 13. And he calls him the God of hope. And if you were to look at this passage in some detail, um, we like the, the phrase abounding in hope because that's the primary message of verse 13 is that we're one abounding in hope. Now Paul prays, verse 13 is almost like a benediction on the heels of this quotation that there will come the root of Jesse. And that Jesse, of course, was the father of David, which is why I mentioned the Davidic line. So from the, from the origin, from the beginning of Jesse, part of the fruit of Jesse is a boy named David who becomes king. And he who arises will rule over the Gentiles. Now we've, we've made a category shift. Wait a minute. Isaiah is prophesying that this Jewish king is going to rule over Gentiles, the whole world, which is tipping the hand toward Messianic. And in him, the Gentiles hope, which is a strange phrase. Do you think Gentiles sat on the outside looking at Jews in the first century? I wish I could be one of them. Why does Paul write in this way? Why does the Old Testament write this way? When they met Yeshua, when they met Jesus, he was a Jew. Now the Jews rejected him, a lot of them, but some embraced him. He's a Jew. And the question is, how Jewish do I have to be to be part of this club? Which was the big kerfuffle in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem Council. You might remember the story. Saul and Barnabas were out seeing people come to Christ like crazy. And the Jews said, wait a minute, you guys come home and give a report. What are you doing out there? We hear about these Gentiles becoming saved. You've got to make a report. It's a big, huge kerfuffle. It's almost there's some humor in studying it because they're like evaluating, well, how Jewish do you have to be to be a Christian? Because these guys were all pedigreed. They were all trained by the rabbis, rabbinics. They were fluent in Hebrew and Aramaic. They knew the languages. They knew the systems. They knew about the Passover. These Gentiles, these goy didn't know anything. Why Paul's message is all the more poignant. Neither Jew nor Greek. Slave nor free doesn't matter your station or lot or race or gender. The gospel's for all. And so fast forward, Paul smiles as he leaves and he goes on his way sharing Christ with the Gentile world. Notice in verse 13, it's like a benediction. May, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. First of all, God is the origin or the source of hope. This is so important. It's a fine distinction, but make a note. You and I aren't the source of hope. You and I don't engender and foam up and lather up, let me hope and hope and hope. No, God is the originator of hope. Hope originates. He's the source. God is the source of hope. The God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace. The assurance of knowing God comes joy and peace. Luther writes, the apostle places joy first and then peace. Because it is joy that gives peace to men, engendering this in their hearts. Um, if we try to hope against hope, and we get, I'm, I hope I'm going to do a better job today, I hope I, I lick this cancer, I hope chemo works, I hope my mother comes to Christ, I hope my teenage son uh, changes his ways, I hope my teenage daughter finds... I mean, those are fine phrases, but there's no hope in hope. That's like faith in faith. That's the little engine that could theology. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. What did he do? He worked harder. That's the true story of the little engine. He worked harder. It wasn't that he zenned his way over the hill. 
when you go to a football game or a basketball game and you're hoping the field goal is going to be made, and all the, all the audience is like, think good thoughts, it'll go through the arches. It doesn't do a thing, trust me. There, there's no juju in this stuff. That's the little engine that could theology. You're not hoping in hope. You're hoping in God, the source of hope. And as you hope in the God of hope, you find joy and peace. And that's otherworldly stuff, men and women. That's not just positive mental attitude. That's a peace that surpasses comprehension. That's an otherworldly thing. And when you're in the middle of the storm, you go, I'm trusting in God right now. I don't see the outcome. I don't see the end. But I'm arrested in Him. And then, as I often say, you can smile at the future even when the immediate is unsure, even when the next step is unknown. You can smile in the future because he's a good God. Does that mean we're not going to die or have Alzheimer's or dementia or breast cancer or fill in the blank? No, because we're fallen people in a fallen context. And because we're fallen people in a fallen context, things are always going to be broken. Get over it. Have hope in him, not hope in the circumstance. Your and my ability to maintain a relationship with him is the key. Your and my ability, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, there's the relationship, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul uses a picture that I love. He says, don't be drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that passage is so simple, it's often misunderstood. Don't take an external substance and drink it to excess to where it controls you. Because if you drink too much wine, you're going to be controlled by wine. That's why a quiet person becomes a loud braggart. Or a passive person becomes contentious and fights when they're drunk. Don't take an external substance and let it control you. Rather, be filled with, that's not quantity, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Don't let the external substance control you. Let the internal person of God's Spirit control you. And that takes one simple thing, letting go of control. I'm going to trust Christ in me by obeying, by faithfully staying with God's Word, God's Spirit, God's people. And I'm going to say to myself, Michael, you can't do that. Michael, you can't have that. Michael, you don't need to go there. I talk to myself all the time. I'm sure I'm clinically insane. I'm positive I am totally insane. I talk to myself all the time. Michael, you've got to get out of bed. Michael, you've got to deal with this. You've got to go forward. Michael, you can't do that. You, no, no, you can't have that. You must say no. I don't care who else is doing it easily. No, you can't do that. And I'm asking God's Spirit, will you help me in that resolve? Because it's not a fight of the, fight of the flesh. It's a contentious fight of the Spirit to say, whose Spirit's going to win this engagement, me or him? And it's trusting him. And that's what Paul says. By believing in him, so that you will abound in hope. Some concluding thoughts, four points. Number one, when we lose hope, we focus on, we, we lose hope when we focus on human resources. We lose hope 
when we focus on human resources. Now that doesn't mean we don't get people to help us, but if we exclusively focus on human resources, we're going to get disappointed. Uh, Men, perhaps, not always, but men tend to be fixers. We tend to be, I can do this, I can resolve it, I'm smart enough. Uh, What do you want done? I mean, how many conversations have you had as a husband and wife when Cindy's telling me a problem and and I've learned as I've gotten older in marriage to say, honey, do you want me just to listen to you or would you like me to offer suggestions? And 9.9 times out of 10, she'll pause and go, just listen to me. And I go, okay, and I just sort of ignore her. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) You really don't want my help. You just want to talk to me. Okay, talk to me. Uh, Because guys are wired to fix. Well, let's do this. Let's do that. We can remedy that. I know some people that have those resources. And the problem with focusing only and always on human resources is we're not trusting God. Now, does that mean we don't call a repairman or a tech friend? No. But if our hope is always horizontal in men, what's the, what's the end result? We're always looking to people to solve our problems. Secondly, suffering is the sandpaper of faith and hope. Suffering is the sandpaper of faith and hope. Um, I do not think we learn apart from pain. We think we learn. We think we think. But when you get the report that it is cancer, when you get the report that your mom or dad has dementia, when you get the report that your son or daughter is in big trouble, when you get the report, that's when life makes up its mind. As I said so many times, I don't trust God when my health, my life, my family, my finances, I I love what I do, I don't trust God. You touch any one of those areas, I get busy trusting God. The corollary is kind of scary. We're fallen people in a fallen context, but God uses sandpaper to make us what we're not. I don't think you learn. I don't think we have the capacity to learn until we hurt. Then I need help. I've used this before. Some of you may recognize it. Phillips Brooks, 1884, the candle of the Lord. The reason we are led into trouble and out again is not merely that we may value happiness the more from having lost it and found it again. The idea is that God doesn't just take us into trouble and take us out. So we say, oh, you know, when I live with chronic pain, when I was dealing with cancer chemotherapy, when my son or daughter was breaking my heart, when I was going through a divorce, it stunk. It was horrible. And now that I'm out of that, I feel so much better. That's a very shallow view of it. He continues, but that we may know something which we could not have known except by that teaching that we may bear upon our natures some impress which could not have been stamped except on natures just so softened to receive it. That's a $25 quote. Because when the sandpaper's rough enough and you and I can't run to resources, human resources to get help, we cry theological uncle. But that's not the point. The point is now you're ready to listen. When you see the third or fourth specialist and they go, no, this is aggressive cancer, and you've got these traditional treatments, or you can go try the, the non-traditional treatments, now you're ready to listen. And who do you want to talk to? Somebody who survived. Doctors are fabulous. I love, doc- I love the medical profession. I, really, I truly do. I, they help me tremendously but I'd rather talk to someone who's had the back surgery I'm about to have than just my back surgery. How did you do two, four, six years later? Because 
They do their job. I live with the result, not the surgeon. Surgeon does a great job. They can't control everything. I know that. I want to talk to somebody who's been on the other side of it. So when you have a son or daughter that goes into dark places, when your marriage was in dark places, when somebody breaks your heart, when your parents talking to someone earlier in the dementia issues, and you had to put them in an assisted living or not, who do you want to talk to? Somebody else who's done that. That's when the impress is able. That's when I'm ready to listen. I don't care one whit about grief if I haven't lost somebody. I lose my father, lose my wife. Now I want to learn about grief. Thirdly, hopelessness seems to be an accumulation of a lot of small loss. Hopelessness seems to be an accumulation of a lot of small losses. Um, young man that I've known for many, many years, one of the brightest young men I was privileged to know, and we lived in Virginia, discipled him, taught him, incredible man, great marriage, great kids. He had a series of losses. And each one of those losses created doubt in his relationship with God. And over a period of about two years, he walked away from his marriage, walked away from his kids, walked away from God. He's smarter than me. I can't, I can't argue with him anymore. I just love him and pray for him. And I don't frankly even know how to love him. And I could be wrong, but I would submit the accumulation of a lot of loss got him to a place of hopelessness where now he dulls his pain in different ways. And last, true hope is a person, not circumstance. True hope is in a person, not circumstance. Which goes a little counter to my first point about don't always turn to human resources. Uh, Because when I have back trouble and I've tried X, Y, and Z and I know it's time to talk to my surgeon, I know that man can help me because he's helped me twice before. And I want to go see him because he's got the skills to cut and go in there and do what needs to be done. My hope is in that doctor, not the medical system. My hope is in a counselor friend who's been through this. My hope is in a person who's gone through a divorce and they understand me. My person is, my, 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 a person is someone who's filling a blank. When people lose a sense, when they lose their hearing or their sight, it's been proven again and again and again. They want to talk to someone else who lost their sight or lost their hearing, not the people that are trying to teach you how to deal with it makes sense. So the ultimate solution is the person who's done it all right, who's got it all down, who knows all about you. Our hope comes in Christ, not in our circumstance. So we're living in a time when if you turn on the news today or read the papers today or go on the internet and look at your news sources today, you're going to read bad stuff. I do. I read a lot of it. Maybe that's part of my problem. My hope isn't in some world leader who's going to make it all right. My hope is in that person who from the beginning of time has existed before eternity passed, who exists, who came, who was born, who died, was buried, resurrected, came back from the dead, and any and all who trust in him are given the free gift of eternal life and forgiveness of sins and a relationship with him. And here is the person with all the resources in the universe saying, Why are you hopeless? I've overcome the world. I've overcome the grave. Get your eyes off the loss and get it on me. Father, we thank you for this Advent season. Help us to face the worries and the what-ifs of the present storm around us. 
to know you, to keep on believing in you regardless of our circumstance, to rest in you, to trust in you where true hope resides, that you promised in eternity past, that was born in a manger laid, and will come again on a horse, executing justice and ruling in righteousness. May we be the most hopeful people on the planet. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you. Have a hopeful week.